Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. The rain came down steadily as Grover Percival took his brisk morning walk around town. He always looked forward to his leisurely jaunt, but today was different. It was election day in the fall of 1920. The winter chill was just setting in, and the October rain was a welcome distraction for the lame duck mayor, a symbol of a fresh start. You see, Grover had recently decided not to run for re-election after his first and only term as mayor of Vancouver, Washington. As much as he enjoyed serving the city he loved so dearly, this was a weight off his shoulders. Grover tipped his hat merrily and smiled at townspeople who waved as he passed through downtown. Today was a new day. He was no longer pressed to worry himself over city business or politics. Instead, a new mayor would soon take over, and Grover's coming days would be spent with his wife and working at his successful insurance business. At least, that's what he envisioned. Because that chilly, drizzly Sunday would be the last time anyone would see Grover Percival alive. I'm Ashley Korslin, and this is Wicked West. Episode 3, The Bridge Ghost. They say if, if you feel proud and happy reading history, you're reading it wrong. As a historian and author, Pat Gelada has studied the story of the missing mayor extensively. She's also a former politician who served on the same city council as Grover Percival many years later. So perhaps that's why she's taken a special interest in what happened to him more than a century ago. Pat also just loves history. But history is also hilarious uh, because it's people and they do stupid things. <laughs> and you have to laugh at them. Uh, they do heroic things and you have to cheer for them. Uh, there are some that you realize you want to model yourself after because of what they did. So it's, uh, everybody loves a good story. At 87 years old, Pat is known as the town's resident historian, and she definitely has the chops to back it up. What is it about history that has so much of your heart and your passion? Uh, because history is now. History is right now. And it's the story. It's people. And of course, she loves a good old-fashioned ghost story. And uh, that's where the ghost stories come from. Is It's not the building. It's the people that were there. And then you start getting those stories. And they're wonderful stories. Pat has written many books about local hauntings and lore. Many of the topics she researched while working as the curator at the Clark County Historical Museum. It led her to uncover all sorts of strange tales about old-time crime. 
One of the services offered by the museum was property research. And occasionally a person would come in and want to research a house or building a business. People would come into the museum hoping to learn about the home they had purchased or moved into. Sometimes, if it was an older historic home, people would ask if anyone notable in history had ties there. But some wanted to know if anyone had died long ago on the property, or if a terrible tragedy had occurred within the walls of the home. So Pat would dig through cemetery records, obituaries, and newspaper articles to uncover the past. And then Pat recalls several occasions where people came into the museum inquiring not about a house or a building, but about a figure they had seen late at night, an apparition of a man in period clothing. They saw a tall, slender being in a long coat and a, a black fedora hat. Some described it as wide brim, some as a fedora. In each of these separate instances, Pat says the witnesses saw the ghostly figure walking across one of the main bridges that connects the city to Portland, Oregon. They told Pat they had seen the figure walking southbound on the bridge. He was wearing clothing that appeared to be from the early 1920s. And when the man crossed the hump in the bridge, he disappeared. And... Some of them got off the bridge and came back and got on again and came back, but there was no repeat of it. Each of the people who recounted this story to Pat seemed uneasy about what they had seen. So she started researching to find out who this ghostly apparition could be. And I say, you know, gee, you know, so many things have happened on that bridge. So many traffic accidents, uh, uh, four people, I believe it was four, were killed building the bridge. People have jumped off the bridge, sometimes on purpose. Uh, so there were just many, many, many reasons, but none of them fit the story. That is, until Pat discovered an old newspaper story about a former mayor who had mysteriously disappeared after walking across that very bridge in 1920. It was Mayor Grover Percival. Grover Reed Percival was born in Ohio in 1860. According to records, he practiced law there before moving to Washington in 1902 with his wife and two sons. He continued to practice law in Vancouver and eventually opened his own insurance business. In 1914, he ran for city council, where he served for three years. Then, when the town's mayor resigned in 1917, Grover's colleagues appointed him to fill the seat. The next year, he formally ran for election and won in a landslide. Uh, he was a good mayor. He was involved always to improve the city. Around that time, nationally, society was experiencing intense growing pains. A strong desire for political reform had reached fever pitch in America. The progressive era was a time of widespread social activism. People wanted a better society for themselves and their families. The nation's wealth began to improve, and more families moved away from rural areas and into cities. 
It was certainly a period of growth and transformation for the country, as well as for the city of Vancouver, Washington. You cannot point to a single thing in our life that didn't change in that time span from 1910 to 1920. Everything changed. Prior to becoming mayor, while still on city council, Grover Percival had advocated for a project that would help move Vancouver into a new, more lucrative economic direction. At the time, prune farms, lumber mills, and a brewery served as the town's main employers. But politicians, including Grover, wanted to expand enterprise. They started making plans to build a bridge that would connect Vancouver to Portland, a thoroughfare over the Columbia River that flowed between Washington and Oregon. Before ferry service was established in 1870, people had to cross the river using canoes or rowboats. According to records, a man died one winter after attempting to walk across the frozen river. He fell through the ice and drowned. In 1905, the Lewis and Clark Centennial came to Portland. Several thousand people overflowed onto ferries in hopes of attending, but the boats couldn't handle the influx in riders. It became apparent to officials during that time that they needed to build a bridge. After all, Portland was expected to double its population in a matter of years, and the same with Vancouver. Both cities were growing incredibly fast as more people moved to the Pacific Northwest. Politicians wanted to capitalize on commerce that would benefit both sides of the river. According to the Columbia newspaper, by 1911, Clark County had bridge fever. While on city council, Grover Percival sat on a committee to build what would later be named the Interstate Bridge. While many people supported the idea, the project was very controversial. Politicians in Washington argued with electeds in Multnomah County, Oregon, over who would pay for it. Grover led a group of people to march into Portland to stir up support for the bridge and also persuade Multnomah County to pony up for their share. The group brought with them bagpipers and a large banner. It said, we need the bridge and so do you. We've done our part, now you come through. And they marched with those banners and they'd collected $600 in gold and they slapped it down on the Commerce Club's table and ordered the bagpipers to play until they surrendered. Eventually, the two counties came to an agreement on funding, much to Grover's delight. And so Mayor Percival had achieved what he wanted and that was that bridge connecting the rest of the world to Vancouver. And after 23 months of construction, the interstate bridge was completed. Locals held a grand opening on Valentine's Day of 1917. Opening the bridge, my gosh, it brought 50,000 people. There are only 18,000 people living in Vancouver. The ceremony was held in the middle of the bridge. A young girl pulled down a yellow ribbon to officially open the bridge to traffic. The local paper called it the greatest day in Vancouver history. And it would be able then to drive from Mexico to Canada on one road. That was a huge draw. This was connecting, connecting for the first time. 
The shock was that there were more automobiles went across it than horses. There was a five cent toll for every vehicle and horse that crossed the 38 foot wide road. Electric streetcars also began operating. Some 40 years later, in 1957, the bridge became part of Interstate 5. And the following year, a second parallel bridge opened right next to the original. The new portion became the southbound span of the interstate bridge that we know today. The original bridge became the northbound section. But back in 1917, when the bridge first opened, it was not a celebratory occasion for all. There were a lot of people who were very angry about the project. Many of them claimed it was a waste of taxpayer money. Why was the bridge such a contentious issue? Uh, they said that only people who live in Vancouver would ever use the bridge. So they didn't feel they should, that they should pay for it. Also, it was going to destroy part of downtown. We don't like change. And uh, that's why they didn't like the bridge. <laughs> it was change, it was gonna change everything for us. An unwelcome change that was rumored to play a role in Grover Percival's looming disappearance. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. On that drizzly Sunday, October morning in 1920, as Grover Percival set out for his walk, he looped around the downtown core. He was then spotted crossing the interstate bridge heading toward Portland. But then, other witnesses said they saw him return to Vancouver later in the afternoon, walking at a leisurely pace, nothing off about him or out of the ordinary. And Grover was seen walking around downtown. Historian and author Pat Gelada. Tipping his hat to the ladies, happy. By that evening, Grover's wife became concerned when he failed to return home. It was election night, and voters had just elected a man named John Kiggins as the next mayor. Grover could finally say he was relinquishing his duties as the town supervisor. But he was nowhere to be found. The next day, with still no sign of him, word started to spread. This was completely unlike Grover to disappear, especially without informing his wife. Townspeople put up signs and began searching. Businesses closed their doors around lunchtime so employees could help in the search efforts. Some 300 men split up into almost two dozen search parties. They spread out all over the city and combed the banks of the Columbia River. They assumed he'd fallen in the river, and so they were basically searching downstream. Uh, of course, that night, for the first week or so, uh, they searched vacant properties, they searched fields, they searched, uh, they searched the barracks for him. 
Days passed with no trace of Grover. The days got colder, the nights longer. It was as if he had vanished into thin air. The local newspaper even kept track of Grover's absence. In fact, the Colombian had a little box up in the upper right-hand corner. Still no sign of the mayor. Searchers dragged the river several times for Grover's body with no luck. They found bodies downstream. The family would go and no, it wasn't him. Naturally, rumors started to circulate. People shared whispers that Grover might have skipped town. Surely he must have felt the pressure of a wrongful death claim that had been levied against the city during his time as mayor. Maybe he caught a train and took off. Investigators distributed circulars all over the West Coast and even down to California. The family received various leads, too, but they were all dead ends. Just as hope started to wane, a gruesome discovery rocked the community 36 days after Grover went missing. In late November, a man from Portland discovered a body on Hayden Island, a densely wooded area between Vancouver and Portland. The body was quickly identified as Grover Percival. A hunter in the wilderness of Hayden Island uh, found the mayor hanging from a tree by his handkerchief. Think about that for a minute. Imagine trying to tie a handkerchief around your neck and tie it to a tree. Even a big handkerchief. Grover's personal effects, money and jewelry were still on him. He left no farewell note to his wife or children. Reports speculated that Grover had left Vancouver that cold October day, crossed the bridge into Portland, and walked about a mile west into the woods. He then climbed the tree and hanged himself. Investigators almost immediately declined to call for an inquest, as there appeared to be no evidence of foul play. His death was swiftly ruled a suicide. Grover's wife gave an interview with the Seattle Times, saying she believed her husband was under immense pressure as mayor and that it had broken him mentally. She claimed he had slept very little for several weeks before he disappeared. The Colombian newspaper reported the night before he went missing, Grover had attended a commission meeting and seemed nervous. He had somewhat neglected his insurance business uh, for the, the really strenuous work he put in as mayor. So it, was, it wasn't as it was not in trouble, but it was not as uh, successful as he thought it could be. So that would be depressing. But not everyone was convinced that Grover died by suicide. Others pointed to his seemingly happy disposition as he took his final stroll around town. Grover's finances were in order. He was relieved to be wrapping up his term as mayor and looking forward to focusing on his insurance business. Some were upset that investigators weren't looking into his death harder. They pushed rumors of foul play, or perhaps a sinister political motive for murder. But nothing was ever proven. I think uh, he had made so many enemies over the bridge that someone waylaid him, and that's my opinion, 
that he walked out on the bridge, whether it was suicide or murder, no one ever knew. It just, there he hung in the tree for a month. Perhaps he was taken there on foot by people, forced to go there, uh, which would tie in. He wouldn't meet a, a killer somewhere by accident in the wilderness. So uh, I think he was taken there. Because, yeah, why not, if you were going to take your life, why not just jump off the bridge? Why, why go all the way into the wilderness of Hayden Island? That is quite bizarre. It is. And with a handkerchief. That, that still keeps coming back to me. Is just the, how do you do it? How in the world do you hang yourself with a handkerchief? Eventually, the rumors faded and demands for an investigation subsided. People in town began to accept the determination that the former mayor died by suicide. Loved ones held a funeral for their beloved and had him buried in Vancouver's Park Hill Cemetery in November of 1920. But that isn't the end of Grover's story. Some believe his ghost haunts the Interstate Bridge to this day. Pat Gelada has researched other tragic deaths near the bridge, but none of those victims seem to fit the description of a tall, slender man wearing a coat and fedora, walking at night. There was a mail plane that got lost in the fog and eventually hit the bridge on the lift span and spiraled down and caught fire, and the pilot was, uh, was killed. At our centennial, 1925, was a high dive specialist. And he went up on the top of the lift span and waved all of the boats away. He was afraid he would hit one. And he dove into the river and didn't come up. And the boats that would have been his rescue boats had been waved back by the time they got there. He had been swept away and uh, they found him downstream. So this, this bridge has a kind of a storied past. Yes, it does. It does indeed. I think of those every time I go across the bridge. So if you're driving across the bridge on a cold autumn evening and see the figure of a well-dressed man walking alone, it could just be Grover Percival, the Interstate Bridge Ghost. None of us want to believe that we shut off completely when we die, that there's just nothing. And I think that deep inside all of us, there's a, uh, will I go on? Will there be something after death? And ghost stories kind of say, yeah, there is. On the next episode of Wicked West... There was a severe depression in the early 1890s, and he had been hard hit by that. A man disenfranchised by the wealthy elite. You know, he was upset at the powers that be. Plots revenge. Uh, Mr. Ladd had been dead for four years, buried in Riverview. But what started as an ingenious plan to strike it rich. He had came up with this plan to take Mr. Ladd's corpse and to hold it for ransom for $50,000. 
ends when the bumbling criminals uh, the police arrive at the scene make a series of unfortunate mistakes they go to the local blacksmith oh i made that knife he said so right away the jig is up that's next time on wicked west Special thanks to author and historian Pat Gelada for her research on the Interstate Bridge Ghost and for sharing this story with us. You can learn more in Pat's book, Haunted Vancouver, Washington, which is part of the Haunted America book series. It's available through major retailers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and at the Clark County Historical Museum. Wicked West is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this series, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash wickedwest and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Ken McCormick and Nick Bieber. Digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Jennifer Woodruff, Randy Cobb, and Skylar Stever. Special thanks to KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retsinas, and the entire KGW staff. If you like this show, check out our other series, Should Be Alive, Urge to Kill, and The Yellow Car, available wherever you listen to podcasts.